The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And, and, you know, ISIS, when they lost the caliphate, a lot of people expected that they're going to launch revenge attacks and attack here and there. But they they became more and more focused on uh, local environments, whether you're talking about Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Sinai, Africa, and so on and so forth. And the continuing pressure and the continued pressure and the killing of people like Qurashi uh, means that they're going to focus even less on international terrorism. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 4th, 2022. Last night, U.S. forces killed in northern Syria Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurayshi, the current leader of ISIS, or at least until yesterday, the current leader of ISIS. It was an operation in which at least 13 people, including civilians, were killed, apparently when Qurayshi detonated a bomb that destroyed the building they were in. What are the implications for the future of ISIS, for the future of Syria, for the future of the U.S. military, which is supposedly at peace these days? We gathered an excellent group to chew it over. Lawfare's senior editor, Scott R. Anderson, and Hassan Hassan, editor-in-chief of New Lines magazine. We talked about who Al-Qurayshi was, what we know about him, hint, not very much. We talked about who on the ground was helping the United States, hint, it'll surprise you. We talked about the future of Syria and its new political landscape, and we talked about what this all means for a Joe Biden who says we are at peace. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 4th, Another ISIS Leader Killed. So, Scott, why don't you get us started by just giving us an overview of what happened last night and what do we know about it? Sure. Uh, What we know at the moment is that between uh, around 1 a.m. to 3 a.m., I think is the time frame we've been given local time in Syria near the Turkish border in an area that's at least under the influence, if not control, of HTS, Hayat Tahrir Asham. I pardon my pronunciation. We saw a raid by U.S. Special Forces soldiers on a residence, a three-story residence, residential building there, 
targeting uh, who is believed to be, uh, or whom the U.S. government has now claimed to be, essentially the leader of ISIS or of the Islamic State, uh, Abu Ibrahim al-Karashi, who kind of assumed the leadership in 2019 after a prior special forces raid killed uh, Abu Baghdadi, who had been kind of the longer term leader of ISIS. The raid itself, President Biden himself said this morning, was performed by special forces soldiers, not in an airstrike in an effort to minimize civilian casualties. Um, some details that have come out about the, the raid since then have indicated the building was actually cohabitated with people that they don't believe, the U.S. government didn't believe had any association with ISIS. Uh, and so they actually went in and evacuated those people before engaging in a um, exchange of fire with some of the people on the second and third story who are associated with ISIS, and in which ultimately uh, al-Qureshi is alleged to have detonated uh, an explosive device on the third story, killing himself and members of his family in the third story explosion. Um, the U.S. government has been very clear uh, in its assertions that it was not involved in that. That was, in fact, a detonation initiated by him. Uh, U.S. forces then evacuated the scene. They actually came under some fire with local security forces, had some sort of exchange there, according to uh, U.S. government statements, had a mechanical malfunction with a helicopter that they ended up having to destroy later by a drone strike uh, or missile strike of some sort, but then evacuate and experience no uh, U.S. government casualties. So Hassan, unlike Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, Qureshi is a figure about whom we know relatively little. What do we know about him and who was he? That's right. And it's exactly that, that we don't know anything about him or very little about him. Uh, what makes the story even more interesting. He was one of the rare, probably the only ISIS leader uh, who never made a public speech. Uh, nothing audio or video came out of, uh, of him. And yet the Americans were the, uh, the Americans were able to track him down and kill him. And that shows you first that the U.S. has become extremely apt and capable of tracking uh, these leaders, but also that ISIS has almost nowhere to uh, to go to and hide. So, you know, uh, this leader was, we started to know more details and kind of get more details about him from the Iraqis and the Americans around the summer of 2020, because before that, uh, even the Iraqis and American intelligence didn't know or were not quite sure uh, who he was. They suspected uh, it was uh, Abu Ibrahim al-Qurashi, who hailed from northern Iraq, near Mosul. He comes from a very particular network within ISIS or a particular faction within ISIS associated with Turkoman or Turkified Arabs in the north of uh, Iraq. Uh, and that's interesting because it is the same network that has always played an outside outsized role and influence within within ISIS, uh, but they never became the leaders of ISIS. He was the first to actually be appointed uh, leader of ISIS. And the reason for not uh, for playing that big role in the background and not never as leaders of the organization itself was because their ethnic background was disputed as in, you know, for ISIS, they have to have someone who comes from the family or the clan of Prophet Muhammad. Uh, You know, this network is widely suspected or widely known to be uh, of Turkish background. So they couldn't be Arabs or from the lineage of, uh, uh, of the prophet. Uh, so that murkiness probably was the reason why ISIS didn't say much uh, in public about him. And also the Americans and the Iraqis both suspected that he was of Turkish background. And that was 
why they thought he was a placeholder uh, caliph until they find someone who is a better, a better qualified to be, uh, to be in that position. Uh, so again, uh, it's important for two reasons. One is that his uh, little was known about him, and yet they were able to trace him, uh, track him, and kill him. And the second one is that his background also shows how ISIS, how desperate ISIS is to appoint someone who with questioned or disputed at least uh, credentials within the organization. So that is a fascinating description, and it leads me to my next question nicely. Um, ever since the capture of Abu Zubaydah uh, in 2002, there has been a pattern in U.S. major actions against uh, major overseas terrorist organizations where we capture or kill somebody with a lot of fanfare. This is a major figure. It's the number two or number three ranking person in Al-Qaeda or uh, ISIS. And then uh, it's supposed to have enormous operational consequences. And then, you know, it doesn't. And then the person, as in the case of Abu Zubaydah, turns out to be less important than, than we said on the day of the capture or the person turns out to be more replaceable and with somebody who turns out to be even more capable than uh, he is. That's the Zarqawi story. And so my question first to you, Hassan, and then to Scott is how big a deal is this? Is this just another irreplaceable man with whom the graveyards are full of and history books are full of full of irreplaceable men who turn out to be very replaceable or is there something genuinely significant about him i think it's a it's it's a combination of the two uh, on one hand uh, yes uh, no isis leader especially for the best part of the existence of isis really you know was uh, indispensable uh, ISIS learned uh, over the years to live without a leader or at least not rely completely on the leader. Also, they're very decentralized. They make sure that each cell uh, works on its own and also learned from uh, the repeated examples of ISIS leaders being taken off the battlefield and yet the organization existing or continuing to thrive uh, or come back or recover that they said, you know what, from our history, we, we have learned that killing one leader is not the end of the world uh, for them. And they've made these statements over and over again. But on the other hand, it is uh, symbolic and symbolically significant to kill a leader at a specific period of time because ISIS uh, currently under duress, under, uh, under pressure and weakened. So if we continue to take down uh, as in the world or the U.S.-led uh, coalition, take down the um, uh, these leaders, then the, uh, the the group would not be able to organize itself in the same way it would if you just leave them, you know, to their own device. And uh, you know, it just shows also just another th another point to be made here is that uh, the U.S. presence and ability to operate in the space of you know Iraq and Syria uh, and navigate the two spaces just shows how indispensable the U.S. has become. Uh, in the fight against jihadists when it comes to taking down these leaders. Yeah, I don't have much to add on top of what Hassan said. I would defer to his expertise in this particular case. Uh, the one thing I'll note is you know, U.S. strategy never hinges on removing these people. I think the U.S. government has recognized for a long time in the war on terrorism uh, or whatever you call the latest iteration and continuation of what was once the global war on terrorism 
part of the reason you see a sustained U.S. military presence in a lot of parts of the country, a lot of partnership relationships with foreign governments and foreign security forces is increasingly because of the realization and understanding that these groups aren't just the products of single individuals or single moments. Um, in fact, they reflect broader social political conditions um, that you got to address those underlying conditions to direct the movements. Taking out a leader can disorient a group, can make it operationally less effective for a period, can change its trajectory. But it's not, you know, you kill the snake by cutting off its head. You have to actually adopt the environment in which it's operating. Um, so it's just a slice of U.S. policy. But there are big momentous occasions that give a president a chance to show something clear that's perceived as a military victory and a tactical victory by people who may not follow this stuff that closely. Uh, and that's why we see them kind of made a big deal out of every time it happens. I think Hassan actually made the observation or point on Twitter, if it wasn't you, apologies, Hassan, but that every president so for the last several years has essentially gotten to kill the lead, major leader of one major terrorist organization. And so now Biden is continuing in that tradition. Uh, but part of that is because each one you know, has made such a big deal and keeps referring back to those singular victories in political narratives. That's why they stand out in our memory, but they're not necessarily the most influential turning points in the broader conflicts. Right. So, Scott, what has uh, President Biden said about it? I mean, keeping with that tradition, he did speak today. Uh, he was obviously a little bit less bombastic about it than Trump was about uh, Baghdadi. But what, it, what did he have to say on the subject? You know, it's a set of remarks, I think, is, is what we would expect. It was, uh, you know, not, I wouldn't say subdued, um, certainly made the point somewhat expressly, and I think I'm paraphrasing, but not that far off, that you know this is a bad person who is now no longer on the face of the planet because of the bravery of U.S. troops. That is a particular framing that is intended for public consumption and, and fits a political narrative. But for Biden particularly, he hit three points that are interesting and unique to Biden in his remarks this morning. One, uh, he made the point that this is a demonstration of the effectiveness of the over-the-horizon strategy for managing terrorism threats that he has expressly embraced as his administration's strategy since the withdrawal from Afghanistan or, or since before the withdrawal was really hit with that withdrawal, making the point that we can effectively handicap and diminish the capacity of terrorist groups operating at a fair distance without the density of a military presence uh, or political presence that we've had in Afghanistan and Iraq. For, many, well, for much of the last 20 years. Although it's a little complicated here because they also hit the other point that this was done in coordination with Syrian Democratic Forces. This is a group in Iraq the United States has worked very closely with, pardon me, in Syria, the United States worked very closely with that controls a big swath of the country in substantial part because of U.S. support and continuing U.S. support, even though it, it is, you know, politically and legally kind of questionable and causes lots of friction, uh, which we can get into with the Turkish government in terms of that has their own conflictual and difficult history with the SDF and groups the SDF is related to, um, but really drove the point that these partner relationship relationships in Syria that are a remnant of a broader conflict that some people have criticized and questioned, why do we still need them, drove home the point that this was really important to succeeding at this operation and to combating the Islamic State more broadly in Syria. And the third point he made is that really emphasized that this was an effort to minimize civilian casualties. I think this is really important in this current moment where the administration has come under a lot of scrutiny um, for decisions it made in regards to the targeting with an airstrike suspected bomber in Kabul during the withdrawal. And then a number of media stories that come out about activities, not necessarily under Biden's term as president, but as part of the broader military campaigns in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere, 
talking about improper uh, targeting of civilians, improper impact on civilians. So Biden really made the point, and it appears to have genuinely entered into their planning for this operation, that we did not pursue an airstrike because we did not think we could minimize civilian casualties enough. We did put our troops in harm's way to try and get civilians out, and in fact, went in and evacuated civilians before engaging in hostilities to try and minimize civilian casualties. So it gives a hint, hint about where the Biden administration is coming out on this, at least in this very seminal decision it made, particularly notable because the Biden administration is still reviewing a lot of its national security policies, it hasn't come out with a formal new policy yet um, that it incorporates the civilian calculus that has been a little bit of a back and forth between the Obama and Trump administrations. Um, so this gives a little hint about at least some of the thinking that went into that, particularly in this moment of, of scrutiny of civilian casualty issues. All right. So I want to talk about both of those issues, the SDF and, and Syria policy more generally, and civilian casualties. Let's start with the latter question. Uh, Hassan, despite everything Scott just said, there were in fact civilian casualties here. The military and the, the White House have uh, tried to emphasize that these were uh, the result of actions by the target, uh, that is, he detonated a bomb that killed himself and his family, uh, not the result of errant action by U.S. forces. You know, a lot of these claims uh, sometimes turn out with the hindsight of a few weeks to be less than they seemed on the first day. Do you have any reason to doubt the official account as the uh, military and the administration are describing it today? Uh, as you said, uh, uh, you know, we've seen examples before where, uh, you know, more details uh, come out and better clarity uh, when it comes to these uh, operations. But I lean towards uh, believing uh, the official account because we've seen examples of like, uh, you know, you try to minimize the casualties, but obviously uh, strategy, or, you know, and intent changes when when the reality, you know, when you, when you start basically engaging with the reality of it. Uh, so I, for the most part, uh, I uh, I believe it because I know also the the ISIS leader would have detonated himself and you know before he would be captured. Uh, so that that sounds uh, you know about right when it comes to how these operations play out. All right, so let's talk about the political landscape against which this took place. Scott, uh, the Biden administration, as you pointed out here, kind of wants to have it both ways, right? It's at the same time, this is the first time the United States is not at war in 20 years. And at the same time, look at our great victory. We just killed the head of ISIS. How are they splitting this difference? And, you know, is it credible? It is definitely a tension that I don't think the Biden administration has 100% figured out how to split uh, the difference in this particular one. Uh, you know, they have embraced the line repeatedly, rhetorically, that, you know, there's a first moment in which the United States is not at war in the last 20 years. But of course, we're still engaging in hostile operations. We have this recent strike in Syria uh, or counterterrorism operation in Syria. We've had uh, drone strikes in Somalia, uh, a handful of them all happening at a much lower pace and lower density than happened under the Trump administration or really even under the Obama administration. And that's part of a trajectory that's actually kind of
kind of predates Biden, but that Biden appears to have accelerated, exercising maybe a greater degree of scrutiny over what kind of targets and how frequently these tools are being used, but they're still being used. Perhaps more importantly, depending on what metric you judge what a war is by, because there's no clear definition, we still have US troops in Syria and in Iraq engaging and supporting with Syrian democratic forces in Syria and with the Iraqi government of Iraq. Are those part of a wartime effort in Iraq? I think you could very reasonably claim, look, these are people there at the invitation of the Iraqi government. They're in non-combat roles as of the end of last year, although their actual activities haven't changed that much as far as we understand. So that may be one case. In the Syria case, you know, these are troops deployed there against the wishes of who is still the recognized leader of Syria, more or less, uh, the Assad regime, right? Um, They're there, not at the invitation of the Assad regime, but in spite of the objections of the Assad regime, precisely to continue to combat uh, the Islamic State. And that's still the legal basis and the policy rationale behind them being there. So I think it's a little hard to argue that, you know, we're not engaged in any sort of conflict anywhere, not to even get into, you know, Somalia and the Sahel and the other place where you see counterterrorism operations still happening. So, you know, I think the Biden administration is really trying to make the point, well, no, we're not, you know, out there occupying territory or providing a major troop presence. The thing that really got uh, Americans exhausted about war, which is that we kept seeing thousands and thousands of young men and women having to deploy and spend years of their lives in these foreign places, that has ground down to a halt. But a lot of the other metrics about what constitutes a war haven't really ended and probably aren't going to end. In fact, may, are the Biden administration even quite intent on continuing, perhaps for very good reasons, You know, but that's going to cause tension with particularly the progressive left elements of the Democratic Party and frankly, some of the more libertarian right elements of the Republican Party, many of whom would like to see a much more constrained, even more constrained, the Biden administration uh, approach to the use of military force in these sorts of circumstances. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, 
and that the one with the most information about me was called Hleck. I have no idea what Hleck is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so Hassan, walk us through the landscape of the area in which this strike took place. Because, you know, Scott has alluded to it being done in cooperation with SDF forces, but I think a lot of listeners don't actually understand what that means what does this part of Syria consist of at this point, and who is the United States cooperating with for an operation like this? So that's an important question because it's a big part of the story and, and why it's interesting. Uh, this part of Syria is dominated by a group that used to be part of ISIS, and uh, they had the you know differences and you know didn't unite officially with ISIS in 2013, and they took their uh, separate way. And they evolved into uh, this uh, mostly Syrian organization in, in, in character and in, in the way they operate, uh, as in focus on Syria. They're fighting the Assad regime and, and they moved away from uh, the kind of ideology that ISIS uh, has. And, and just to be clear, what's the name of this group and what is its ideology at this point? 
sure. So it's Hayat uh, Tahrir al-Sham, which used to be Jabhat al-Nusra, and when it was started in late 2011 in Syria, but officially in early 2012, uh, there used to be a branch of ISIS or Al-Qaeda in Iraq or Islamic State of Iraq uh, in that they were dispatched by al-Baghdadi into Syria to form a, a cell and, uh, you know, the nucleus of an organization in Syria when the, an anti-government protest movement started in Syria in 2011. And they grew uh, from there into becoming like a larger, uh, large organization operating in, uh, you know, around Syria. And when they became strong by 2013, al-Baghdadi, their boss essentially in Iraq, uh, said, you know what, we want to unite, uh, unite the two organizations, the Islamic State of Iraq, with the Syrian Jabhat al-Nusra and call it the Islamic State of Iraq in Syria. And that's where ISIS uh, comes from. Uh, they uh, started to fight because the Syrians didn't agree with that strategy. They said, you alienate everyone. You know, so they started fighting. Now, that's an interesting thing because one is this organization moved away from the jihadist, globalist organization that ISIS wanted to emphasize in both Iraq and Syria. Uh, and before they established the caliphate in 2014. And by moving away from from, uh, from ISIS, they established presence and fought uh, ISIS in, uh, and, and then expelled ISIS from northern Syria. So ISIS had uh, presence, used to have presence in the area where al-Baghdadi and the Qurashi were both killed. That's the same area. But it's a hostile environment for ISIS. But they, but that's the point. They hit where uh, they're least expected to be, and uh, that's again, that's where the U.S. doesn't have any any presence, doesn't have allies. Uh, it coordinates sometimes with Turkey when it strike when it conducts certain tr- uh, strikes. In Syria, the U.S. is mostly aligned with the Kurds in eastern Syria. Now, I have suspicion from my conversations with. Uh, jihadists who operate in northeastern, northwestern Syria, and basically in the area where the ISIS leader was killed. And uh, my suspicion is that the Americans at least had some connection with the jihadi organization in that sense to get information or informants within these uh, forces uh, to track these ones. Because it make, makes no sense that the Kurds don't have any presence there; they don't any have any kind of local connections. Uh, informants and, uh, or otherwise, and the Turks are kind of far away from that. So it has to be coordinated, uh, my suspicion, uh, with with local forces somehow, whether formally or informally. So just just to be clear, you think that the you know former branch of Al Qaeda in Iraq that has kind of broken with with ISIS. Uh, is maybe quietly have cooperated with U.S. forces in this in this raid. Yeah, it's far less surprising than it sounds. You know, I know this from contacts. Uh, you know, uh, now that doesn't mean that the U.S. coordinating directly with them. Uh, what it means is, you know, these forces have interlocutors who are connected to them. Uh, they are they might be members or the most likely members of them, but not publicly. And they coordinate either with the Turks and the Turks coordinate with the Americans or sometimes uh, informally the U.S. and these jihadist interlocutors, you know, again, not officially, would be coordinating uh, with each other. You know, so these this details, you can't say them publicly, but but it is it's a reality. And um, it's also part of why Jabhat al-Nusra, again, they broke away from ISIS 
they formed their own organization, but they've been desperate to persuade the Americans that they are not a threat uh, to international peace or international you know, uh, norms. And uh, so they want to limit themselves to the Syrian context. And they've said uh, time and again that they have no intention. In fact, they oppose any moves to uh, launch attacks against the West from Syria. So they've been uh, they've been attacking ISIS. They've been uh, trying to convince the Americans to that they're friends somehow, or at least they're potential allies. In the same way, you know, the Taliban tried at some point where they said, you know, we are against ISIS and we're not interested in making Afghanistan or in this case, in case Syria be a launch pad for attacks against the West for international terrorism. Just to add one thing on top of uh, Hassan's observations, we've seen some interesting statements from HTS leaders in the past few months, I think six months or so, maybe it may go back a little further, signaling a desire to engage more with the international community to kind of establish a degree of credibility and legitimacy and highlighting either directly or indirectly, and then uh, a point that's been picked up on by a number of people, the role, the fact that they are under uh, U.S. sanctions uh, and are a designated foreign terrorist organization, not directly, but actually as a as a kind of subsidiary of Jabhat al-Nusra, being a big obstacle to that. So that very well might fit into this equation if there is a degree of coordination, as, as Hassan suggests there might be, which I find plausible, um, certainly if, if Turkey is involved to some degree underscoring uh, an unwillingness to host uh, major leaders of ISIS could enter into that equation to help build the case saying, we don't need to be designated under these sanctions regimes. We're not a foreign terrorist organization concerned with the United States anymore. Um, but I think we'll have to wait a few more weeks and see where the dialogue goes before we know for certain. Exactly. So it's not clear because from last time when uh, Baghdadi was killed in 2019, Everyone wanted to take credit. Uh, so we heard the Kurds saying, uh, you know, saying details about how, you know, how they helped the Americans track Baghdadi. The Iraqis gave a, another compelling story of why they did it. And the Turks said the same. So you have to always take, uh, take it with a, salt, uh, a pinch of salt, whatever uh, any of these forces uh, say at this point. Uh, now, the tricky thing is the U.S. never gives, or not, not never, but like usually don't, don't give details about what happened, uh, so they let their allies on the region in the region to uh, take their own credit, essentially. All right, so let's talk about the Kurds, Scott. One of the problems I think that the Biden administration has is that in the absence of the ability to have significant forces deployed, you're relying a great deal on on the SDF forces and you know, quietly Bashar Assad is retaking or reestablishing a fair bit of control. How should we understand the the landscape with respect to what is really the U.S.'s main on-the-ground operational ally? Sure. I, I mean, I will give my sense of it, but I would invite Hassan to jump in because I suspect he's tracking this more closely than, than I have for the last few months or so. Um, the SDF is a group that is often referred to as Kurds. They're actually not uh, exclusively Kurds, um, but the backbone of the organization, the leadership structure, and the kind of historical origins uh, are with the Kurdish population in Syria. The SDF is actually kind of a rebranding of the organization that happened over the course of the counter-ISIS conflict to underscore the idea that they had a separate identity from any sort of sectarian identity, um, and they made an effort to kind of bring in other ethnic, religious minorities, other representation as part of the security forces, as particularly as the SDF started taking control of territory and trying to incorporate kind of like local elements also opposed to ISIS. 
but it's the reason why they're so controversial is because they have this tie to a particular strain of it, an ideology um, that is shared with the PKK, another Kurdish group in eastern Turkey, that with which they have had a variety of ties over the years to the point that some, particularly the Turkish government, argue that they're basically indistinguishable between the two. Uh, and Turkey views that faction as a terrorist group um, that has engaged in terrorist activity against Turkish military, Turkish citizens. So that's that's the kind of background we're talking about, why this group is so controversial. The United States really turned to this group, though, over the course of the ISIS conflict because they needed partners on the ground with whom they could coordinate both to push back on ISIS and claim the territory and hold it from being reclaimed by ISIS, because this was an era where ISIS actually controlled swaths of Syria and Iraq that were, you know, a state-sized area, a fairly large state for the region. Um, and they were instrumental in pushing that back. Uh, and that's it was a product of relationships that the United States already had with the independent Kurdish Kurdish region in Iraq that had some ties with these Kurds, although the, their historical relationship was actually very complicated. But it's devolved into a very important strategic functional relationship, at least from the perspective of a lot of U.S. policy people, because they say, look, there's a power vacuum here in eastern Syria. We could invite the Assad regime maybe back in to fill it, but that's going to be brutal. We don't know who the Assad regime is going to side with. It will mean that the uh, Iranian elements that have moved in to back the Assad regime, which are seen as a big problem and were seen as a particularly big problem by the Trump administration, are going to have more free reign of the country. So we don't let that happen. Well, who else do we have that we could turn to that might be able to help hold territory in a way that will prevent a resurgence of the Islamic State? And that's been the SDF. And that's been the ongoing U.S. mission um, really for most of the last eight years. We saw the Trump administration withdraw U.S. troop presence from the northern part of the country, actually kind of like where the Kurdish elements at the SDF had started and some of the biggest Kurdish population cities there so that Turkish forces could move in in a very controversial effort uh, in 2019. That was a very controversial move of the Trump administration led to the resignation of uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis and Brett McGurk, who was kind of the U.S. official spearheading this diplomatic and, and uh, effort against counter ISIS, as we covered on this podcast at the time. But the U.S. policy hasn't changed that fundamentally since then. It still is to continue to support them, continued efforts to hold their territory. There is still a limited, as I understand it, uh, although I'm not actually sure of the exact scale at the exact moment, um, U.S. military presence in the region that they control. And there's no easy way out because it's not clear who you would hand the territory over to that would be preferable to the SDF. Um, the Assad regime is really kind of the only other option. It's worth noting the SDF and the Assad regime actually aren't directly opposed to each other, uh, at least rhetorically. Um, the SDF kind of holds control of territory in spite of the Assad regime. I'm sure the Assad regime would like it back. And we have seen proxies of the Assad regime, most notably a Wagner, Wagner mercenary group, and a kind of notable action in, I believe it was 2017, uh, occasionally Iranian elements engage in conflict with the SDF uh, and Syrian actual like regular forces as well on occasion. But you know the SDF says, we don't actually want an independent country. We're not trying to separate from Syria. We want autonomy within Syria. And you know where that all goes is part of the interminable political process or multiple political process ongoing about the status of Syria that uh, you know it's not clear what exact trajectory they're headed in. Hassan, did I cover the ground basically on that? I, I hope I got it about right. No, you got it exactly right. Thank you. So Hassan, how stable in equilibrium is this? You have the uh, non-ISIS forces who control the territory in which this raid happens. You have happened. You have the Assad regime, which controls uh, the the bulk of the country, uh, and then you have the uh, SDF forces with a kind of U.S. 
uh, non-combatant contingent uh, cooperating with them. Is this something that is likely to change radically over the next few months, or is this is this kind of where we are for now? So it, it depends. For example, uh, when it comes to eastern Syria, where the Kurds uh, are in control, the general consensus is that things will stay as 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 they are now. Uh, especially now with the U.S. the new Syria policy in the U.S. is that the U.S. presence will continue for now. And uh, at some point, if there is any expansion of the Assad regime or the Syrian state into eastern Syria, it has to be with negotiation, you know, under a, a kind of a deal with, uh, with the Kurds. Now, the, Kur- uh, the Kurdish forces in the east are also interested in having a political deal with, uh, with Damascus, where they, are, they continue to be part of Syria, part even of the Syrian state, but uh, they are in control. Uh, more like a, a semi-autonomous part of uh, uh, Syria. So uh, when it comes to the U.S. and even Russia, it seems to be uh, all of them are in, in, not interested in uh, reigniting a war, whether between the Assad regime or the jihadists in the north. And I say jihadists in the loose term, but they are, you know, Hayat Hersham, you know, with the other forces, uh, so the rebel forces in, in, in the north and uh, the Kurdish forces in the east. I think the interest everyone is interested in having some sort of a political settlement where the Assad regime agrees to some sort of self-administration for for these forces, and uh, the Assad regime also is incapable currently of launching and waging wars because of the the sheer economic deterioration that's happening uh, in the country. So it's, for now, it seems like things are going to continue as as, as they are uh, for the foreseeable future. But again. Uh, things could change in the future, especially that Iran and others are interested in expanding the Assad regime's control to other parts of Syria. And how does the killing of Qureshi change, uh, if at all, the sort of equilibrium that you've just described? Is it is it important in that regard? Does it tend to reinforce what you just said, or is it a, a kind of wild card? No, I don't. I don't think it has any bearing on what's what's currently happening, as in like political uh, implicit arrangement. That's uh, that's now reality in much of Syria. But I want to kind of just unpack this because, like you said earlier, the killing of ISIS leaders or other jihadist leaders doesn't usually change. Uh, it's not a kind of a drastic change or dramatic change that affects a you know a given organization. But I think the context is very important here. So it is a tactical. Uh, operation meaning killing someone who heads an organization, but he never made a speech publicly. So uh, his ability to lead day-to-day operation is very minimal. His leadership is very minimal, uh, hands-off and so on and so forth. But if you look at the, uh, broaden the picture a little bit and kind of look at the entire jihadist landscape, actually the killing of uh, of Qurashi is a, is very timely and very important because the jihadist movement in general is moving away from international jihadism. This is something I unpacked in a in a recent essay uh, I wrote. And, and 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 you know ISIS when they lost the caliphate, a lot of people expected that they're gonna launch revenge attacks and attack here and there. But they they became more and more focused on uh, local environments. Whether you're talking about Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Sinai, Africa, and so on and so forth. And the continuing pressure and the continued pressure and the killing of people like Qurashi uh, means that they're going to focus even less on international terrorism. 
because they are just basically under so much pressure and, and they, can't, they can't put their uh, act together. And uh, if you continue down that road, then what happens with ISIS would be the same thing that happened with uh, Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda offshoots. Uh, in that they move away from international jihadism and they reach a point where they start flirting with the U.S. and trying to convince the U.S. to ally with them or at least leave, leave them alone. And that's that's really the lesson of the past 20 years of the war on terror is, is yes, the U.S. has been unable to eradicate jihadism, but it certainly changed their mind and their thinking about what's a priority. Is it uh, the local environments and fighting here in Syria, uh, and there, like Syria, Iraq, controlling some parts of uh, these areas, or uh, alienating or, or kind of getting the U.S. to lash at them and, and, and destroy them? That's actually one of the most optimistic things I've heard about U.S. modern counterterrorism policy in a long time. If you take that in its simplest form, it says, hey, well, you know, we may not have created flourishing democracies all over Afghanistan and Iraq, but there has been a sort of success in changing the focal ambitions of some of these organizations. Do you see that as a, as a point of optimism with respect to U.S. policy? I think it's uh, realistic, uh, and I think that the U.S. has won the war on terror when it comes to changing uh, their tactics from targeting the West into, uh, you know, doing something else. You know, when it comes, whether you're talking about other other aspects of the war on terror, then obviously the record is, has been awful. But when it comes to changing uh, jihadism and modern jihadism, I think that's, that's, that's a clear uh, win for the U.S. Now, there will be exceptions here and there, but they're very, very... Uh, negligible compared to what ISIS was five years ago, three years ago, even yeah, four years ago, actually, and 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 Al Qaeda was ten years ago or, or or even older. So, you know, that's not like in just an optimistic po- point of view, but I think it's a realistic one. If you look um, beyond the you know the usual way jihadist experts talk about uh, jihadism. Now there is this is this is a, a tension between two points. One is ISIS did it before. ISIS uh, weakened was weakened was defeated at some point in Iraq in two thousand eight, for example, and it, it was able to come back. Now a lot of people, you know, kind of use that formula or that uh, template to say ISIS will come back again, as if history repeats itself without any consideration of local environments and local conditions. I think the world has changed especially uh, since 2011, it took some time. ISIS was, in my opinion, the last uh, breath of uh, global uh, jihadism. It was a difficult breath, obviously, destructive. But it will, it, I think, in my opinion, it will be the last attempt to actually do that kind of uh, thing. Uh, and this view is vindicated by the Taliban, by uh, Jabhat al-Nusra and other al-Qaeda offshoots that moved away from the international jihadism. Uh, that doesn't make them any better or any cooler, you know, like as in good guys, but they 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 certainly move away from international jihadism and terrorism. So, Scott, we're lawfare, so I would be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, for the legal consequences and implications of this. It doesn't seem to me like there are a lot of novel legal issues here, but tell me if I'm wrong. No, I, I think that's basically right, Ben. We know what the legal arguments are 
behind this strike, even though the Biden administration hasn't come out and said it. Um, they're controversial still, but they are consistent with what the last two presidential administrations have done. This was almost certainly done pursuant to the 2001 AUMF as part of uh, for U.S. domestic law, possibly the 2002 AUMF as well. I doubt that because there's just not much of a nexus to Iraq here, whereas there was arguably for some uh, Islamic State elements, but that probably would find its way into the talking points as, insofar as that's still the standard talking point which I suspect it is. But that remains the basis for all these U.S. military operations in Syria. On an international law basis, it's still on the basis of collective self-defense uh, with Iraq and individual self-defense of the United States against the terrorist group seen as targeting the United States. And uh, there's no reason to suspect that's changed. Uh, the Iraqi government, while it's occasionally hinted at, particularly after the Soleimani strike, kind of repealing its cooperation with that sort of justification and request for assistance that still undergirds that that hasn't happened yet. There is one legal angle here. It's kind of a legal policy angle that's worth flagging, which is that in his press conference this morning, or remarks this morning, I should say, not press conference, President Biden hinted that actually the intent of the operation may have been, or perhaps the aspirational hope of the of the operation if it had gone perfectly, was actually not to kill uh, Karashi, but to capture him and bring him to justice. I believe it's the language the president used. Um, that's kind of interesting because it suggests it may have been aspirationally at least a capture operation, although I think anybody probably would have guessed that that was going to be a, a very tall order for a group that no doubt is is as uh, well uh, defended as as this individual was. But it raises the question, well, what exactly would um, we have seen the Biden administration do with this? Similar question came up in early or mid-2017 for the Trump administration when it first captured somebody else who was believed to be involved with the Benghazi incident. And extraditing people were saying, well, would they take him to Guantanamo? Would they prosecute him? Would they do something else? Here, certainly the Biden administration is not going to take him to Guantanamo. This a question as to whether they would have tried to take him home and prosecute him in Article Three courts. If they did, there might be an indictment somewhere. My, the more likely path in my mind is what they've done with other senior ISIS leaders, which is that they've actually handed them over to the custody of Iraq or uh, Kurdish forces in northern Iraq, actually, most most frequently. Um, and so that's my suspicion about what would have happened if they'd actually succeeded here. But that's that's a perhaps the Biden administration is interested in going back to do prosecution in U.S. courts, something that prior administrations have done for certain major terrorist leaders. And so that that's an interesting policy twist the Biden administration may have considered implementing and just not had the opportunity to pursue. There's also always the very slow boat option. We are going to leave it there. Scott R. Anderson, Hassan Hassan, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is the one and only Ian Enright of the law firm of Goat and Rodeo, LLC. Hey, folks, you heard ads on this podcast. If you are not a material supporter of Lawfare and you should become a material supporter of Lawfare and thereby get rid of the ads, you can do so on our Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by the one, the only, Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the right honorable Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.